The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. All right, very good. As usual, appreciate those that keep supporting these daily Twitter Spaces efforts that I do. And to that end, this will be available on all your favorite platforms, Spotify, Amazon, all that good stuff, Apple, probably in a few days here, so you can listen to the whole thing. I'm excited for this conversation. Um, I've been a a huge fan of Michael Belkin's for well over a decade when, in a prior life, I used to get his phenomenal Belkin Report, which we'll talk about my name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. As joining me for the hour is Michael Belkin of the Belkin Report. Mike, I credit George Noble, I think, for getting you on Twitter and doing spaces. Introduce yourself a little bit here to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get interested in markets? And what are you doing with your research? Okay. Hey, thanks for having me, Michael. I remember our, our days back at uh, in New York when you were at Pension Partners, and we were the Soho. I remember meeting you at the Soho Club there. Anyways, my background, I came out of UC Berkeley Business School and Statistics Department. I studied time series analysis along with econometric forecasting. That got me into Solomon Brothers. I was hired by Laszlo Barini in market analysis, and I was a quant at Solomon Brothers. I worked in equity research, market analysis. I developed a forecasting model, which I've relied on ever since. And in the last few years at Solomon, I was the quantitative strategist in equity proprietary trading. There were four of us running that uh, house account on the equity side, kind of like what Meriwether was doing. And that was the liars poker days. It was a fun place. It was before Solomon became rigid. <laughs> and uh, it, it was fun. You know, it was, it, was, it was a blast. And anyways, that's where I cut my teeth. And so I, what I do is forecasting. I have a model that forecasts 12 periods ahead using weekly and monthly data. And so it, I, I use that on all the macro stuff, bonds, stocks, foreign exchange, and particular focus on industry groups and sectors. So I, you know, I have a number of clients around the world. I'm kind of low profile. I don't do many of these things. I'm, I'm on George Noble's once in a while. But so I publish the Belkin Report. It's a weekly report. And I try to keep clients on the right side of major trends in the market. All right, let's talk about the the model development for a moment that you use for the forecasting side of things. How did you go about backtesting? Do you try to optimize based on different cycles? Talk through that development and, and kind of continuation process. Okay, so what I studied at Berkeley was time series analysis, which is Fourier, Fourier analysis and Box Jenkins ARIMA models. That's A-R-I-M-A, autoregressive integrated moving averages. So I I spent time in the stat department studying the mathematics behind both those techniques. And there was nobody else in the business school doing that at the time. It was all physics and chemistry, you know, people like that. And it was very, very difficult mathematics. It's not, now you can get software programs that do this stuff for you, but this was like the math behind it, like how to how to really calculate the stuff. So um, it was a real, it was really hard. But uh, what I did is it gave me a background in the mathematics behind forecasting. And so when I got to Solomon, I had a wonderful 
you know, computer system. And I, it I was able to backtest things, systematic trading. So if you have an entry point, exit point, what's your percentage winning trades, losing trades, average gain, average loss, biggest drawdown, et cetera, sharp ratio. And so I did that all. That I cut my teeth doing that, backtesting everything in the book. And so I've been, you know, I know what CTA models are. I know what momentum models are. I know what regression models are. And most of that stuff didn't work very well. You know, so it's basically you're flipping a coin. And if you get 55% winners and 45% losers on a lot of things, that's pretty good. But that wasn't good enough for me. So I kept trying to prove on that. And so I, my ba- everything I do is based on rates of change. So I'm a student of rates of change and rates of change are not random. So that's what I do. I have a forecasting model that's similar to Fourier analysis, which is cyclical. It shows turning points. So very frequently, I'm seeing the opposite of what the consensus is saying. So everybody's loaded up on one side of something. And I'm I'm always looking for buy low and sell high. So and that's just not on the market, but on the industry groups, sectors, individual stocks, et cetera. So that's what I do. Forecasting 12 period using weekly and monthly data. This is not day tra- trading. It's more positioning for the next few months and say next three months to six months to one year. So I'm glad you mentioned that point about you backtested everything you, you can imagine. And a lot of the stuff doesn't work. So you and I come to the same conclusion, but from different life experiences. So in my case, when my father passed in the midst of the great financial crisis, I was trying to find a job and I had trade station. And because finding a job is a full-time job, I was backtesting everything imaginable because I wanted to find something that automatically could hope, hopefully make me survive, get me some profits while trying to get an income stream. And it, it is remarkable to me, Michael, how there really are very few true predictors when it comes to the markets, even though you always have somebody on financial media talking about this signal or that approach, when you actually do real regimented rules-based backtesting, most of the stuff that people refer to has has no predictive power at all. Yeah, that's true. And you got to remember, we're dealing with uncertainty. The financial markets are are one of the most impossible things. I mean, it's trying to get a handle. You know, they will frequently fool you. And I look upon it as kind of being trench warfare. Everything I do... I have a forecast, but the model will test that as as well as you. I'm sure you're in the same situation. If you have a forecast, you're looking for something, You'll the market will test you for sure. You stick your head up, somebody will shoot at you, but hopefully you get down before the bullet hits. You get back up and shoot at them. So that, that's what the market is. It's, you know, it's really combat <laughs> I hate it. that on a day-to-day basis. But you have to have something. If you have something that you're sure about based on statistics and probability, that gives you the confidence to make a forecast that people can use. So basically, I'm trying to use probability to give advice to sophisticated institutional investors family offices, big hedge funds and everything. And they, of course, they do it all in their own way. So I'm just one input into the way that people make decisions. Yeah, and, and if, you know, even expanding on that, because you use the right term, it's about probabilities. The, the problem, as you know, when you're doing a forecast is that over multiple roll of the die, the probabilities might favor the outcome and the process that gets you to the outcome. But in any single roll of the die, a forecast can obviously be wrong, even though it's for the right reasons. How do you think through periods where you have maybe a successive series of what's called incorrect quote unquote calls? Because that happens to everybody, the the pros and the amateurs. Right. So good question. The qu- it's fight or flight, basically. You know, are you right or are you wrong? So I'm always looking at the model forecast, and I I don't have any overlay of something where it goes to this level. It's not like technical analysis. I couldn't make technical analysis work in a systematic way. It just didn't work for me. I couldn't make make. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. It wasn't stable. But so I I'm looking at a forecast, and and most of the time it will work. So so what the model does, it gives direction position, and intensity. So this is not like a regression model that gives you a predictive value of something. It doesn't, this, my model does not give a predictive value. It just gives you direction. That's being up, down, or neutral. But secondly, position, beginning, middle, end, and three, intensity or confidence interval. So I'm looking for number three, the strongest signals. So I I only like to stick my neck out. Like some signals are not that strong. Others are really strong. And, you know, the market is a very complex system and you're going through time and things change. But the long-term signals do not set up that frequently. 
Okay, so major long-term monthly signals. Sometimes you can go years without having one of those. So uh, there have been extremely strong long-term signals in the last year, so we can get into those in a minute. But so back to your question, is it fight or flight? If the model signal changes, that's all, I stick with the model. I don't have any other, you know, if it goes to the minus this, down one point or something. No, it's not like technical analysis. The models, I stick with the model. It changes and occasionally I'll get something completely wrong and then I'll have to backpedal. Most of the time that doesn't happen. All right. I mentioned that you're doing forecasting on stocks, on bonds, on Forex. Of those three, is there a particular asset class that tends to be more, quote unquote, forecastable, meaning less in terms of the random, more in terms of the accuracy, just because of the nature of the asset class? I'd say they're pretty equal. But again, it depends on where you are in the cycle. Remember, I said the long term signals don't set up that often. So it's when the long-term signals set up, they're pretty stable for everything. But for sectors, to answer your question in a roundabout way, the model seems to be best at sector rotation. And so I look a lot at ratios. So I'm looking, I know you do this too. So say there's 10 and 11 S&P 500 sectors. So you take a ratio of say energy divided by the S&P, then you have a, that's a new series that takes the market out of, you know, it doesn't have market moves and now it's just alpha. But So the ratio of, of XLE to SPY, if that's going up, that's positive alpha. If that's going down, that's negative alpha. I'm looking at the forecast of that. And so I find uh, that the model signals are usually pretty stable and really, really successful on sector rotation. And by the way, that is a big input into my certainty level on market direction. So if the higher beta, um, say like cyclical stuff, wants to outperform say, you know, tech, things like that. If I've got an outperform signal for tech, that's usually a confirmation that the market wants to go up. Conversely, if the defensive stuff, say utilities, consumer staples, if they want to, if the forecast for those is to outperform, that's usually a bear signal on the market, which I, which increases my certainty on the uh, what the model says about the market. So by the way, just a, a little uh, footnote on that. Right now, you're probably not going to want to hear this, <laughs> but I'm bullish on tech. Tech wants to outperform. My, my All my stuff changed on October 17th, which is now a month and a half ago, right? So I'm looking for a stock market rally for a month or two. Nothing, you know, not, not a forever rally. But the stocks, this is in complete contrast to the beginning of the year. As you know, I was extremely bearish. All these software, cloud software stocks, 50 times revenues, those were all negative. Those were all short recommendations in the Belkin report. So everything changed mid-October. So by the way, the NASDAQ bottomed October 14th. QQQ's 260.49 was the low. Right today, they're 293. That's up 13% about 4% below the 200-day average. So I think we could rally another month or two. So I'm long tactically, not, you know, this is not, I'm not a bubble person. So this is not saying, oh, it's a new dawn, everything's great, you know, go back in. No, this is a more like a short squeeze rally. So that's what I'm seeing. Tech outperforms. The model usually is really good on sector rotation. It likes tech. It likes, there's some other, we'll, we'll get into other things in a minute on the macro asset classes. But anyways, that's that. No, no, and, I, and I'm with you on sectors. I mean, I believe in that sector signaling point. Now, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing. Utilities are starting to show strength again right, in what is supposed to be not really a very good seasonal period anyway for defensives, which I would argue is is maybe this time around telling you that bond yields will drop, whereas the bulk of the year they've been strong while yields have risen, especially on treasuries, which we'll talk about. So from that perspective, I, I, can, I can see what you're saying about technology outperforming, right? Because if one of the reasons that tech was so weak was because of rising rates, well, now maybe we could have seen, who knows, a short term or maybe the top in you know 10-year, 30-year treasury yields. Now, having said that, how do you think about conflicting signals, right? Because you do have some defensive sectors starting to lead again. And again, I can see the argument completely around tech. You, do you simply see to yourself it's relative versus absolute, or do you just kind of take it uh, all in and buy all sectors that you know are showing relative momentum? Okay, so this actually, this kind of gets back to another question you asked a minute ago, like when do you know you're wrong or you know, how do I make, how do I change decisions? So I have utilities as an underperformed prospect three-month view. 
And I know they've been coming back last few weeks, but I'm looking at the forecast. The ratio of the utility sector to the S&P is down. And so I, in my Belkin report, I have a stronger, weaker industry group page. And my shorts at the moment are all like sort of defensive things, you know, utilities, a few other things, banks. Uh, oddly enough, financials uh, are coming in as underperformed prospects and energy I've changed on. Okay, so energy was a major leader. I have energy topping out and rolling over. So that's a fresh position for me. So even though utilities have been outperforming for a couple of weeks, it's not the way it looks in the model forecast for me. So I have, so my short list is not very sexy at the moment. Like generally, and believe me, again, I'm not a bubble person. I caught most of the, all these Shopify, all those things were my shorts early at the beginning of the year. Now they're my longs. <laughs> so what I, you have to be ambidextrous, I guess is one, for, it's one word I, I like to use is if, you know, the market will squeeze people, you know, it will go one way and it will go another. And I, I am uh, dedicated to catching the significant moves. And whereas the other bear market rallies in, I think it was in March and also in July leading up into August peak, my model did not pick those up. This one, it's different. So this one looks like it has bigger legs and it could rally further. So by the way, you mentioned interest rates. So to put things in perspective, the 30-year yield peaked at 4.40% on October 24th. So there were a lot of turning points in October one for bonds. So right now, today, the 30-year yield is 3.68. That's down 72 basis points. And so I've, I've been long bonds very enthusiastically for a couple months now. Um, it's a little bit early, but it's a very strong signal developing. And in my scenario, so as well as doing the forecasting, I'm an investment strategist, and I've been doing this for 30 years now, the Belkin Report. So I've seen psychology swing from one extreme to the other in the market. And my first clients were what I call the hedge fund mafia, all the you know tigers of the world, Steinhardt's, people like that. And I, I thought I was, oh, I'm such a smart, here I've left Solomon, I'm such a smart forecaster. I have all these you know masters of the universe's clients. But it, gradually over time, what I saw these people doing is crowding into the same trades over and over. And at my, at turning points, I'm always looking for turning points, so buy highs, buy low, sell high. And I'd see these guys like into all these, like always buy, currencies, like really long the dollar right before it reversed, you know, really short bonds right before they reversed. So anyways, that was my introduction to market psychology extremes. And so I try to, I, I try to overlay that from a fundamental perspective with what the model is saying. Everything I do is forecasting is based on the model, but the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And um, I would say, like, right, there is extreme bearishness in the bond market. So if you look at the commitments of traders, there's been no covering. There's like large spec shorts in the 30-year, the ultra-long bond, the 10-year, the ultra-10-year, all those, they're at extremes. So what's happened is the, the macro traders have had a great year, like, you know, Chris Pinotti, people like that, big hedge funds. They've they played the inflation trade, right? Long the dollar, short bonds, and short stocks. That was uh, to a lesser extent. But that all changed. So the dollar peaked in September. So DXY, September 27th was the peak, 114.20. Today it's 105, down 8%. Now it's on the 200-day average, but so all those inflation trades have reversed big time. And now the bonds, so TLT, which is my one of my favorite long recommendations in the Belkin Report for the last couple months, it bottomed October 24th, low was 92.4. Today it's 104. That's up 13%. Now, the 200-day average is 114, which is up another 10% from here. So by the way, the since the model doesn't give levels for things, it doesn't. it's not like a regression model gives you a predictive value based on other variables. It's not that kind of a technique at all. It just gives you direction, position, intensity. What I use is simple trend analysis. And I learned this back in my days in market analysis at Solomon Brothers. So 200 period moving averages are usually significant. Things will usually get there and usually hesitate around there, bounce around, you know, that's 200 day, 200 week, 200 month averages. Now 200 month averages are really, those are extreme. Like it's very difficult for something to get to the 200 month average 
It takes a bit, major move if it's been in a bull market to get back to the 200-month average. So the TLT and the U.S. 30-year bond, they're below their 200-month averages. We've had the biggest drawdown, monthly drawdown ever in bond prices. So my model turns out, I think we hit a major inflection point in interest rates. Interest rates have peaked. The dollar has peaked. Bond prices have bottomed. And in a roundabout way, of course, this is bullish for tech stocks. So my report this week is called Long-Term Interest Rates Down, Tech Stocks Up. And as everybody should be familiar, tech stocks are valued on by long-term interest rates because they're long-duration assets, right? So um, I don't think this has really been reflected yet, this decline. Again, now we're down how many basis points? 72 basis points in the 30-year bond yield, and tech stocks have hardly moved. So I think there's a knee-jerk reaction to revalue tech stocks, the earning flows from tech stocks higher. This Again, this is a tactical move. This is not a long-term move for me. I think, Mark, getting back to what I my point in saying this is market psychology, people are too bearish. They're short bonds, they're short stocks, they hate, you know, had people who were, sh- were who were long, like Tiger Global, who got killed being long all these tech stocks earlier in the year, they wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole at this point, probably, right? It's like touch the fire, put your hand back in the fire. No way, Jose. So I think there's a, you know, there's a big squeeze potential here for things to rally into maybe January, February. So that's why I'm looking at a uh, tactical rally led by tech. And oh, by the way, gold, let's not forget gold here. So gold bottomed, same time, October 20th, you know, mid-October, that's when everything changed. GLD, the G, the gold stock ETF was 151 back in October. Now it's 167, it's up 11%. It's on the 200-day average. Now GDX, which I uh, has been my favorite long, it's been at the top of my outperform list for months here. It bottomed September 26, GDX at 2186. Today it's at 30. That's up 37%. So it's been a huge rally. I don't, I, I don't think most people realize this, but gold stocks have been zooming, particularly the last couple of weeks. But right now it's on the 200-day average, so we might kind of hang out here for a while. You know, as I said, the 200-period averages usually give you some sort of a resistance or support level or some kind of pause level. So I do think gold stocks are going higher, but maybe not yet. Maybe, uh, you know, but over the next few months, I think the market will rally led by tech. And um, gold stocks are my number one long recommendation and treasury bonds, TLT. So two things come to mind in, in hearing you talk through that. So one is I'm with you on the psychology. I, I've seen that so many times. It's especially, I think, very easy to see on Twitter. I've used that line many times when an investment becomes religion, it's time to lose faith. right? And it's interesting that we're in this kind of environment where people almost identify themselves based on the stock or the investment theme that they're putting their own risk capital at work. The fact that you even have uh, terms like mafia to describe an advocacy group for a particular theme, it's like whenever you see that, that should make you a little bit contrarian, I would argue. Let, let's keep going with the treasury trade for a moment because I think this is interesting. I think what people forget when it comes to long-duration treasuries is that it's very different than most other bonds right? because of credit risk. And when treasuries run, they run in a really vertical way. There's a degree of convexity. Now, I, I brought up this this parallel before. I want to hear your thoughts on this, Mike. In November, December of 2008, you had a massive, massive run higher in long-duration treasuries and collapse in yield, seemingly out of nowhere. It was something like a 15, 20, 25% move. I forget the exact number, but you know, it was substantial. What, given the positioning that you just mentioned, the bearish sentiment, what do you think? What do you think of the probabilities that you see some kind of almost like super spike on the long end? That's quite possible. So. Again, why would bonds rally? If you go to the Commitments of Traders report, you can get that, just Google it. If you're not looking at it and look at large spec positions and look at the 30-year and the ultra 30, it's ultra long bond, it's it's another 30-year, and the 10-year and the ultra 10-year. The large spec shorts are enormous and they haven't covered. There's been nothing, no coverage. So, So again, TLT is up 13%. And nobody's covered their shorts. So I, I look up, I, you know, again, sentiment and positioning 
is extremely important. So I could, I think there could be a major, major short squeeze in bonds. It's, it's a stale trade. So everybody thought inflation was the problem, right? And uh, so let's talk about CPI for a second, because that's really important for the bonds. So this, my work on inflation shows a major peak. So the June CPI, that's when it peaked, 8.9%. Right now, the latest October was 7.7%. So it's already down two percentage points. Now let's talk about it. What is the CPI? It's a rate of change. And again, this is what I do. This is what I specialize in. I have a model forecast, a statistical model based on rates of change. So when people start talking about when the Fed people, I don't want to be too demeaning here, but when when they start talking about world well, inflation is so bad, we've got to keep raising it. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, these are the same guys that were saying inflation is transitory. We're not even thinking about raising interest rates. Remember that? That was Powell, right? Quotes. When so when they were fueling inflation, um, let, let me just take even one step further back. So how do we get in this mess? We got in this mess because they added $9.5 trillion of stimulus, $5 trillion of fiscal stimulus, and $4.5 trillion of Fed. Federal Reserve balance sheet expansion. That was that was a boondoggle. Like w w they were expecting the Black Plague. We're all, people dying in the streets. You know, we're going to be carrying these people off. Now, I'm not trying to d minimize. If anybody got really sick, uh, you know, and there have been some, of course, deaths. I'm not minimizing that at all. The reaction of of the financial market reaction to lock everybody down and add $9.5 trillion of stimulus, which is 38% of GDP. There's nothing ever been like this. So of course they created inflation. And now they're saying, oh, so when they were creating inflation, they should have been dialing back the interest rates. I mean, I'm not in the pot. I'm not in the business of telling the Fed what to do. The market would be much better at setting short-term interest rates than the Fed. But if they were even pretending to be legitimate, Instead of like saying inflation is transitory and we're not even thinking about raising interest rates, when they're pumping up inflation, they should have been dialing it back, the stimulus. So instead they waited and now, now they're saying, we have to raise interest rates. Okay, so here's another little data point for you. For the last four months CPI, the average gain is, if you annualize it, is 2.8%. That's right, 2.8%. Inflation on a four-month level annualized is 2.8%, not 8.9%, not 10%, not 7.7%. We're past the peak in inflation. Energy prices are down enormously. They're down like 25% from the peak. You know, commodity prices are down. I have mostly shorts. I'm long precious metals, but I'm short energy and, and these other things. The only thing where inflation is still a factor is in services, obviously. The services, there's, but that's not going to last. So this gets back to the bond call. So the guys, the, the inflation trade is so stale and people are still operating on this, these big macro, you know, masters of the universe. They're still short bonds. So now they've covered their long dollar position. So dollar position the positioning has changed from ultra long to neutral to slightly short. So um, dollar index ha has changed the positioning. Bonds haven't yet. So to get back to your question, I think there's a potential for a major short squeeze in long bonds and short, you know, that's, and of course, when we get back to economic weakness, that's what this is all about, right? So the Fed is over tightening, you know, or they should have, you know, they're, they're belatedly tightening instead of tightening when they were loosening or doing nothing. They should, and, you know, when they were pumping QE, they waited too long. And now they're making the same mistake they made. I mean, they're making the opposite mistake of what they made when they added too much stimulus. Now there's, they're overstaying their, their, their tightening for too long. So I think the Fed will ultimately reverse. And by the way, so back to psychology of the market, I think people are so freaking programmed to think that the Fed is the only thing that matters, right? In the stock market, I'm, you know, that is, I don't think that, but I know that, <laughs> that the psychology of the market thinks that. So you're going to have all these people saying, oh, the Fed, December, 50 basis points. That's the last. The Fed is done tightening. Oh, it's good for the market. It's time to buy the market. So I'm very cynical about this, but I think the psychology has to go through that contortion of saying, oh, the Fed's on our side. We need time to buy stocks again. So that could carry through maybe into January, February, even maybe March. I'm not exactly sure when, but the psychological change of people buying bonds, buying stocks, 
selling out of the dollar, you know, buying tech stocks. And uh, and by the way, the the I, I do individual stocks. So after I do the sectors, I do groups relative to the sectors, and I do s- stocks relative to the groups. So I have a long sell, a buy and sell list, you know, longs and shorts. And my just to give you an idea here, my the stocks that I was short at the beginning of the year are now my longs. So I don't know how many people can do this, but this is what I do. I'm, I I have to go with the model. The model changes and I change. And I know it's a mental, you have to go through mental hoops to change. It's very difficult to go from short to long or long to short. You know, like the, most people have a very difficult time doing that. I mean, all my clients do. So they think, sometimes they think I'm crazy when all of a sudden like my report comes through and I say everything reverses like it did in the October 17th report. Anyways, getting back to the idea of a psychological change, people need to get squeezed back out out of their short positions in bonds. Bonds could rally. That's going to probably want to lift the um, tech valuations for people that just purely look at interest rates. And don't get me wrong. Obviously, next year, we're going to be in economic weakness, okay? And earnings are going to go down. I just don't think it's there yet in terms of market recognition of that. I think that will matter next year, starting in the first, late in the first quarter sometime. But for now, we've got this reflexive reaction where people are too short, they're short bonds, they don't like stocks, they've, they got killed in tech stocks, they don't want to buy them again, they're going to get squeezed back in. And there was a saying on the Solomon Brothers trading desk, I remember this, hearing this from an old-timer mortgage-backed trader. The market will do whatever it takes to cause the most amount of pain to the largest number of people. So that's what I think we're setting up for, a short squeeze rally. Let me reset the room for the remaining minutes here. Everybody here, please make sure you follow Michael Belkin. I believe also you have, uh, with the Belkin Report, if anybody wants to get access to that, I not only retweeted it, but there's a discount code, the abbreviated version is all caps Belkin, hard to hard to forget as far as the Belkin report goes. What's the risk here, Mike, of of not just sort of a discussion around the Fed maybe over tightening, but outright disinflation or, or perhaps even deflation? Because I, I'm I'm with you on that. I put out that tweet mid November that I think a year from now it'll be clear that the Fed already over tightens. And when I look at lumber and I look at housing and I see what could be a prolonged bear market there, it seems like there's actually the exact opposite risk of what could happen next to inflation. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a long way from here to deflation though, right? Because, you know, a 2%, we're still like annualized 2.8%. So, I, you know, I put this out on my Twitter. I don't put things out on Twitter very often, but I have a forecast of 2%, 2.8% inflation, 12 months, even the 12 month by May. And that's assuming that's just keeping steady state, you know, no further increase, no further decrease. But we get into an economic downturn, this stuff, prices of stuff are going to start falling. It's already happening in the real estate market. My sister's, you know, there was this huge real estate boom here in Seattle, where I live. I live on an island outside of Seattle on Puget Sound. Anyways, my sister waited too long to sell her house. They were fixing it up and fixing it up. And they thought, oh, I'm going to get 2 million for it. Now they, they just listed it a couple of weeks ago at 1.8 and nobody's even showing up to look at it. So real estate, a decline in the real estate market is one thing. Actually, so lower long-term interest rates will will help a little bit, but the real estate market's topped, right? So it's, it's, it's not going to help any. So all the contributors, all the construction spending, building, all that kind of stuff, it's, it's going to look ugly next year. So I agree with you. We're headed in the direction not saying it's absolute absolute decline in the price level yet. It will take a while to get there, but the at the current the current inflation rate is so far below what I just can't believe how dumb these Fed people are. They they they're looking at a twelve month rate of change, and they're not recognizing the decline in the CPI and inflation that's already taken place in the last four months. So the I don't know what these people do for a living. They have they employ three hundred something. PhDs at the Federal Reserve, right? What are these people thinking? Like, are they just using these crummy models that I found don't work? That's what I think they're doing, you know, multi-regression models. So they, you know, they just feed, which you have to rely on one variable to predict the another variable. And you have to, uh, it, there are techniques for predicting the variable that you're using to predict the other variable. It's all just squishy nonsense to me. So yeah, I do agree. We're headed in the, at least in the direction of, of declining inflation. Ultimately, it's going to look 
probably a, a, dec a declining price level. And by the way, one last comment on that. At the bottom of their hearts, the feds are cowards, okay? They, Bernanke's whole thing, remember, the fed caused the Great Depression. If these guys... When the, if these guys get religion, if they say, oh, my God, the economy's turning down, they are going to turn, turn you know, the QT is going to end in a, not, in, a, in a millisecond, right? And, and rate, all this talk, you know, Bullard, St. Louis Fed Bullard's out there, oh, rates are going up to 5%, 7%, inflation's so bad, we got to do. These guys are going to turn tail just like they turned, you know, at the bottom and started raising interest rates. So they we're setting up for a major capitulation in the Federal Reserve, which will, again, that could be see, perceived as bullish, at first by equity market investors. And ultimately it's not, like you said, we're going back probably in the direction of a 2008 kind of a thing, right? Not exactly, but similar where the economy goes down, interest rates go down and stocks go down together. But that is not yet in my book. This I think gets to be kind of interesting from a scenario analysis perspective, because if it, I've made the argument before that the Fed's gonna cut rates long before inflation goes back to 2% if it ever does, right? Because inflation lags. So they're going to have to cut into some kind of either deflationary event or some kind of you know sudden realization that they overdid it. Talk about just real quick how you think the, the politics of that might look. Because I think that becomes weird if the Fed cuts rates while CPI at that time might be 5 5.5%. Yeah, it might take some event, right? So we've already had the crypto blow up. That, that didn't seem to have much overlay, overlap into anything else yet, just in the crypto world for the most part. Not, I'm not trying to minimize the losses. You know, people may have suffered. You know, that, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. But something is going to break. And everybody, that's in the back of everybody's mind. Something's going to go wrong. But I, I just, it's not, again, I'm, I just don't think we're there yet. That's next year event. After we're looking out, I'm... I'm looking positive until January, February. I do not see an intermediate term reversal yet in sight in my three-month forecast for stocks and, and sector rotation and all that stuff. So I do some at some point, probably like today, the um, the PMI, the ISM is negative for the first time, right? 49. So all of a sudden, they can't ignore the economic weakness and the Chicago PMI was like 30 something or something, wasn't it yesterday? Insane. So these PMIs are falling off the bottom of the chart and the economy is turning down. So sooner or later, even these, these overpaid 300 plus PhDs at the Federal Reserve are going to say, oh, wait a minute. Maybe we've reached an economic inflection point and it's time to stop raising interest rates. So, you know, that's that's going to happen. And and when they cut, as you know, and when they get when they get scared, you know, they just start cutting rates like crazy and doing QE again. So that's not that's not happening yet. Again, that's next year. We're looking out you know, three to six months ahead. When they, So I, I wouldn't be surprised, though, if December is the last Fed rate hike. I think I'm, that's my base case at the moment, 50 basis points, and then everything starts falling apart and they stop raising and start thinking about cutting. By the way, I didn't say your impression of the Fed is spot on in the, in the way that you say it. Let's go to a question. No, so I, I actually think my report this week, I told you was say was... Long-term interest rates down, tech stocks up. My report last week was called The Bond Market Bitch Slaps the Fed. So what's happened is the long-term interest rate, so the Fed raised rates by 75 basis points, right, in, in November. The 30-year bond yield fell by 72 basis points since October 24th. So they've gone the opposite direction. So the bond market is thumbing its nose at the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve does not control the bond market. Maybe they could try please, at some please, point. Please, please preach on that, because this is what kills me about these narratives about around how treasuries failed as the safe haven. Everybody automatically says it's because the Fed hiked rates. The Fed does not control the long end. Absolutely. So they do control. I will not fight with them for treasury bill yields or even out to two years, right? So I'm not long the two-year note yet. But they can, with what they do, with the way they manipulate things, they can definitely control the short end. But the long end does not, you know, long 30-year, 10-year, out to five-year, 5, 10, 20, 30. That's the free market. And the free market, this is what I do. I, you know, I'm a free market believer. I think the market, 
adjusts itself. And, and believe me, it could set interest rates much more efficiently than the Federal Reserve does on the short end if they let it operate. I just crack up when I see, I see, like, did you did you watch Powell's thing yesterday at, at his his speech? He's saying, well, you know, we're considering this and we're considering that, and and you know, was and we never know for sure about this, and we never show baloney. Like, why are you even? But this is this is what they use. This is their mixed up thinking that they think they're smarter than the market and they can set interest rates. So, anyways, they're let them mess with the short end and then let them panic and they'll change directions. But for now. Definitely, um, the bond market. We've got so seventy-two basis points. That's one hundred fifty basis points against the Fed, right? The long-term yields. So, I personally, I think the the bond market is is a, is t- is the true market. What the Federal Reserve is doing is not. You know, it's it's it might matter at some points in time. At this point in time, it doesn't. They're do, they're a contrary indicator. So, buy bonds. I think bonds could keep rallying. And by the way, if they just think about this. If they raise rates, which they're probably going to do by 50 basis points in a couple of weeks, right? And the bond market keeps rallying, the 30-year falls another 50 basis points, you're going to have the 10-year or you know all the yield curve stuff, 30-year minus two-year. The key one to them is 10-year minus three-month. That's already deeply negative, right? So 10-year yields are way below three-month treasury bill yields. That's going to go insane. Like If they raise rates on the short end by 50 basis points and the bond market rallies, that that is going to like make the Fed take notice right there. We could have the most inverted, you know, yield curve of all time, which is a classic recession indicator. Now, I, I'm I'm with you uh, 100% on that. I, I put out that tweet earlier today. It's uh, Everyone keeps talking in the media as if a Fed pivot is bullish. It's like this, it, the data is there. A Fed pivot means they overdid it, right, which is negative. And most drawdowns, the bulk of bear markets happen after the Fed realizes they made a mistake. And I think they're, you know, I'm with you. I think they're going to realize they made a mistake probably sooner than later. Let's get for a question. Okay, to answer that question first, I don't like leveraged ETFs. Um, I've had personal bad experience with them because they are their daily percentage change, where they amplify the daily percentage change, right? Two or three times that. And you can get really screwed in, in a market like where you go, say it inches up, you're doing great, like it goes up half a percent a day, five days in a row. Then you have a 5% move. It completely, you can get completely annihilated, you know? So I don't like leverage ETFs. I think a better approach would be just by call options on TLT. If you want to do something... Yeah. So that would be my suggestion. And so I think there's 10% upside for starters in TLT. So it's 104. The 200-day average is 114. I think it's going there pretty, you know, not tomorrow morning or something, but over the next few weeks, sometime reasonably soon. Okay, and then the silver stocks, I have an outperform. So I do a gold. I have a, a one other product that I do is the Belkin gold stock forecast. So I started following in 2016, all the investable gold and silver stocks in the world. Okay, those are not moose pasture ones, you know, not the Mark Twain, uh, you know, his definition of a gold mine is a liar with a hole in the ground. No, these are investable companies with um, production and reserves, right? And there's only, I'm a, you know, there are only about 25 semi-pure play, which isn't even, they're not even very semi-pure play silver stocks in the world. So um, I am a big fan of silver stocks. And I'll give you a few names. I'll just throw them out. So McEwen Mining, these are, you know, it's not the greatest company, MUX symbol. It's a huge buy for me. Fortuna Silver Mines, FSM, huge buy for me. Buenaventura, BVN, that's a Peruvian miner. You got political risk there, of course, with Peru. And then a couple of, uh, European London listed ones, Hochschild Mining, HOC in London, and Fresnillo, which is the world's largest silver miner, Mexican company. It's kind of a, you know, if that's the that's the best actually silver pure play in the world. And there's a few others. Anyways, yeah, I'm a big fan of silver, uh, even silver outperforming gold at the moment. So I like GDX. You know, there's a silver stock ETF. It's not very liquid. It's not the greatest, but I think... Um, one of one little comment on that is 
what I've what I've found is that the gold and silver stock market is extremely inefficient. So you've got jillions of you know not jillions but say dozens of analysts on Wall Street following every software company, Microsoft and you know Shopify. You know there's a million, there's all kinds of coverage and reports on all this. On these um, gold and silver stocks, there's just a few Canadian brokers that cover them at all for the most part. But there's a few. But there, my point is, it's really inefficient. Like there's a real chance to outperform the GDX and the silver um, stock ETFs by stock selection because the so there and they are still deeply deeply depressed. So there was you know the gold and silver stocks sold out. They sold off a, a huge, and they've just started to come back the last few weeks. So yeah, I like silver. I gave you some names. I think silver outperforms gold, but I like gold. I like GDX. You know, I think that's the place to be. Those are my top actually TLT. GDX and gold stocks and silver stocks, and then tech, you know, depressed tech stocks for a bounce. Okay, yeah, I'm actually very bullish on China at the moment. Very contrarian play, although, you know, Wall Street, people are kind of trying to pile in. Let me give you, so I added FXI, which is the China 25 ETF listed in the US. I've added it, you know, three, four weeks ago. So it bottomed October 31st, around 21. Today, it's 28, up 33%, but it's, it hasn't even been to the 200-day average yet. So there's another 7%. So I'd say maybe in the first impulse, we're maybe about two-thirds of the way through a move up in Chinese stocks. And now, let me qualify that with, I am not a fan of, of the politics and the of what the Chinese authorities are doing at all. You know, So and that's always in the back of my mind. I, you know, I've, I've spoke, I've been a speaker in Hong Kong and stuff. At, at conferences, several occasions, and I love Hong Kong. I love the the spirit of the Chinese of the Hong Kong Chinese people. So we're just a wonderful, you know, bastion of free market, you know, sentiment. But um, so, anyways, I'd say I'm I'm long China. I think Chinese stocks could bounce. It's remember the two hundred. I talked about the two hundred month average. So the the if you look at the MSCI China index in U.S. dollars. It's all the way down to its 200-month average. So if you're looking, if you like to buy low, I think there's a real chance where something has completely been crushed. And by the way, that that extends to emerging markets as well. I'm long EEM, you know, emerging markets. Brazil, not so much. You asked about Brazil. Uh, it's not at the top of my list. Um, let me see. What are the, the the I see more bounce potential. By the way, these were all shorts for me until like October. So my list. Of emerging markets, okay. China, Taiwan. So that's of course TSM, China, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. Korea, really depressed tech stock play, and Eastern European markets, Poland, Hungary, Czechia, places like that, really depressed. I like Mexico over Brazil at the moment and Peru, but um, more it's more of those Asian ones: China, Taiwan, Korea, and then Eastern European. And by the way, it extends to frontier markets. These Eastern European, these are shorts again for me, nine months until three, you know, until a month, two ago. So places you might not ever look at, but it kind of goes into the equation about thinking about what's going on in the world. Estonia, Romania, Lithuania, Bulgaria, Slovenia, all those are really, really depressed. I don't even know if there's plays on those, but you can buy individual stocks, but it's they're illiquid. It's not really for big institutions. But yeah, so I like emerging markets. I like China. I like Asia and I like Eastern Europe. Okay, good question. So I I developed this at Berkeley and then at Solomon and I you know I kept it <laughs> uh, anyway Solomon doesn't exist anymore but I would I, I you know I just do I keep doing things the same way I did back then I have it on my laptop I used to go up you know every day at the end of the day to the vice chairman Stanley Shopcorn and I show him what, what the forecast was on my laptop I, so I, I updated that by the way Michael because I remember you bringing that laptop to to Soho House when we got together yeah. Yeah, the, I have a. I'm onto a Linux system now, running virtual windows and all. This. It's like trying to run all, old software in a modern system. But anyways, I developed and optimized the model in answer to your question back then, and I developed it over multiple markets, everything from orange juice to Chinese equities to foreign exchange, and so I optimized everything, and I've kept exactly the same model. So it turns out rates of change are stable. And the approach that I have based on rates of change, it, it isn't, 
I don't need to update it every two weeks or something. So that's one thing. One thing I I looked at neural networks, neural networks, you know, and artificial intelligence and all these things that people are machine learning. To me, I, I don't have a lot of respect for it. Let's just say if you people don't even understand what when their model changes when these things run. Like I talk to model developers, and they they say you know, they don't even understand what their own model is doing. I understand what my model is doing. I developed it. I optimized it. I invent, you know, and I use it. So I'm the developer. In a way, it's a little primitive the way I do things because I'm kind of like the 19th century drill press operator with a lever pushing out one widget at a time, you know. That's that's how I do it. I look at everything one at a time with the model and I look at interrelationships, ratios of things to other things. But long story short, my model doesn't change. I optimized it. I stick with it and I apply it. It's been working fine for 35 years. So that's all I have to say about that. Of course, I'm not 100% right. Okay. And I'm trying to be 100% right on everything. That's my goal. And you and I, everybody listening to this knows as well as I do that that uh, that's we're dealing with uncertainty in financial markets. It's a, you know, so things are always changing when I'm wrong. So it's very important to know when you're wrong to close out and, you know, not, so it's like being in a battle. I watched kingdom of God. You ever seen that movie? It's a Ridley Scott movie where the, you know, Islamic group, they're attacking Jerusalem. And the, the one army is like 10 times as big as the other army. So if you know, if you're going out with an army, that's one tenth the size of the other one and you're getting whipped, you know, when it's time to run, <laughs> to turn tail and run back behind your walls. So that's, I guess that's the only answer I have to that. When I'm wrong, I need to know that I'm wrong. And, but again, getting back to what the model does, direction, position, intensity. So I'm looking for strong signals. And my experience with sticking with the strong signals that don't set up that often, but they have, you know, we're in a period where they are setting up. That's very important. And they, most of the time they work, they do tend to work out. So I would basically, let me encourage you, you know, I don't want to give the family jewels away here, but just like, if you start looking at rates of change, modeling rates of change, it turns out rates of change are not random. And so they're stable over time and you can find and if you can come up with a way, which I did, which is a very sophisticated algorithm, right? But, you know, rates of change don't, they're not like something that just changes like the weather, you know, it's raining one day, sunny the next. You can model these turning points and rates of change. Again, everybody, this is going to be a podcast under that Lead Lag Live banner. Hopefully we'll have Michael on again, giving us the top of the hour. Mike, seriously, good to talk to you. It's been a a long time since you and I have chatted one-on-one, let alone publicly in this kind of forum. Uh, everyone check out the Belkin Report. Again, uh, I, I am sincere when I say this. I'm not getting paid to say it. Michael is among the best of the best in uh, the industry as far as his integrity, his research, his approach. I encourage everybody to take a look at that. Thank you for joining. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.